Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. All right. Well, hey, for our listeners, I wanted to jump right in and let people how we know, know how we know each other. Let's see. I sold one of your neighbor's houses before I knew you, your next door neighbor's house years ago. And then uh, just started working out at the gym with one of your sons who then became a realtor and was going to work for me, but now he works for Edge Homes and he's killing it. And uh, we just started talking investments, right? Correct. Perfect. So, so for our listeners, um, this is a little bit different podcast. Blair is a good friend of mine. We've been fly fishing together. We've been hunting uh, jackrabbits together, which is a fun story. But mostly we talk about religion and honestly, investments is 90% of our, our conversation. So Blair owns a number of rental properties, the actual same townhomes that I buy and have sold to over 50 different investors. Blair's situation is just fantastic. He's been very, very good with his money prime example of saving and um, not spending in uh, frivolous things and, and being in a really good position to own multiple investment properties. So with that said, Blair, I'm kind of curious, you're not a realtor, you're not a normal investor like I interview on the show, you're not a fund manager, you're not a lender. So this will be for me a re- really refreshing interview. I'm really excited to have you on because you teach religion. Indeed I do. Yeah. So, th- so this will be fun. So for those people that don't know me, I'm Mormon, LDS, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, has a few different names. So is Blair, but he has some really, really neat background on the Middle East, has studied and, and been over there and goes back to Jerusalem and all the time. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, Blair, is, is how did you get into that? And what inspired you to study that and, and go into education and religious education? So I always knew that I wanted to go to Jerusalem ever since I was a little kid. And, uh, and so when I was, and I also knew I always wanted to do graduate work in the Middle East. Okay. And where that came from, I don't know. It's kind of internal, Sam. Okay. So you've always been fascinated with the Middle East and yeah. specifically your religion or just the overall dynamics of the Middle East? Probably religion, but the dynamics are absolutely fascinating. So my doctoral work didn't have to do with religion. It had to do with the dynamics of the region. Got it. And so when Brigham Young University built a campus on the Mount of Olives, something clicked inside of me. I was an undergrad at, uh, at BYU and I made the decision to go okay. and study there on the Mount of Olives for a semester. And uh, that changed my life in so many ways. First and foremost, I met my wife there. Cool. And uh, and so that's been rewarding. And yeah, Katie's I, awesome. that was in that was like 1988. I'm sorry. She's your better half for sure. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. So we went in 1988, and that was the first time I went, and I've been going back ever since. I don't know how many times I've been. I suppose I could stop and count them up, but probably 30. Wow. So booked and ready to go in 60 days if, if the virus will, will recede, uh, which we hope and pray it will. Uh, but if it doesn't, and for our right, listeners, you're talking year. about coronavirus. People may listen to this after. So it, it is April 9th. We're, we're dealing with coronavirus. And so, so you've got a trip planned and, and you're pretty much on hold until we, we figure out if there's a lift on travel restrictions. Correct. Yeah, it's it's mid-June, so if something were to break, sometimes the temperature can end a flu season. I don't expect to be able to go, but the tour is ready to go still. Got it. Whereas so everything you, else you in April and May has back. been canceled. Yeah, I take people. Okay, awesome. So I'm either traveling to the Middle East to like speak at a scholarly conference or to guide people through religious sites. Very right? cool. So I want to do like, that with you someday, by the way. Yeah, come. Until you go, you can't quite fathom. If you're a Jew, 
by the way, happy, happy Passover to mm-hmm. our Jewish listeners, happy right. Easter to Christians, and uh, happy day to our secularists, uh, non-religious, nuns, and so forth. Blessings to all. But once you go there, you finally figure out what the draw is. Okay. And so, yeah, Sam, you got to come. Awesome. I would love to. Yeah. One of the reasons I go back, I've got seven kids and uh, I've lived in Jerusalem multiple times and I just keep taking my children back. Um, Okay. So they've all been there. And when I went to do graduate work, the timing was perfect. It was right on the hills of a peace accord, the last major peace accord between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And I was able to dovetail my research into that accord and worked primarily in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip doing research among Palestinians. Wow. So, so for our listeners, and I watch, you know, I'm pretty nerdy. I like to watch documentaries and you know, if you ask, I feel like if you ask most of my friends, they don't really know what the West Bank is. They don't really know what the Gaza Strip is. So give us a 15, 30 second overview of each of those and why that peace accord was so important and, and kind of why that was exciting for you to be able to dovetail into that with your research and your doctorate. Okay. The, uh, the West Bank, between 1948 and 1967, the West Bank of the Jordan River belonged to the, the, the Kingdom of Jordan. Mm-hmm. And Gaza, which is about three miles wide and about 50 miles long, it's one of the most populated places, densely populated places on earth. That's just a little strip of land that was owned by Egypt. And mm-hmm. as a result of a war in June of 1967, both of those sections of property were taken by the Israeli um, defense forces, the army. And that became occupied territory. And so it's never been normalized. It's still occupied and according to international law, that's illegal. And so there's always been efforts to, to, to res- resolve that. Jerusalem is in the middle of it. So Jerusalem's a divided So we're talking city. about the West Bank and Gaza are both basically occupied territories. Yeah, today the Gaza Strip is an autonomous zone for the Palestinians. So the Israelis pulled out of that okay. um, about 10 years ago. But the West Bank, and again, Jerusalem is a divided city. So you've got East and West Jerusalem. So East is primarily Palestinian. West is primarily Jewish and, or Israeli. And, and so the, the conflict is chronic. And, you know, President Trump has made his effort to bring peace to the region, uh, getting little of any traction. But he is... You know, he's taking a swing. Every president has. I was going to say, pretty much every president tries, right? Yeah, yeah. The last one to get serious traction was Bill Clinton. And what did he do differently? So anyway, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's quite a story, and very few people know the story of the Palestinians, and so it's always fun to introduce that story to people who are interested in it. That's a conversation for another day. That's a long (laughs) discussion. It's a long discussion. So, so hold on. What did, what did Clinton do as far as the peace accord? What worked? I mean, it obviously hasn't worked hundred percent, but why would you say that that was a little bit more effective? Yeah. The peace accord from 93, the wheels came off of it. Unfortunately, Clinton was able to bridge divides diplomatically that other presidents haven't been able to do. Uh-huh. So as a general rule of thumb, Republican presidents are very, very, very pro-Israel. That has links to conservative Christian ide- ideology and conservative Jewish ideology as well, mm-hmm. and theological positions. They view Israel as being as having a divine right to the land, right. um, whereas Democratic presidents, as a general rule of thumb, do not see Israel is having a divine right Got it. Um, to somebody else's land. All right. And so Clinton was able to bring primarily Yasser Arafat into a, a normal realm of diplomatic relations, whereas all of the presidents prior to Clinton had viewed Yasser Arafat as nothing more than a uh, terrorist. Right. Okay. And so the, in the United Nations, Palestine is a recognized nation. The United States have, has never recognized Palestine as a, as a legitimate nation. Um, wow. And so Clinton was able to just kind of navigate his way through that. Interestingly enough, 
the negotiations and the peace process was derailed uh, as a result of a radical slice of Judaism in Israel, in Israel and a radical slice of Palestinians. The, the radical slice is far more known because of media coverage and things like that. That group is called Hamas. Right. right? So that's a political party and they have a great deal of power in the Gaza Strip, but not so much at all in the West Bank, okay? Because uh, Palestinians in Gaza can't travel to the West Bank, and okay. Palestinians in the West Bank can't travel to Gaza, even though it's only 70 miles away. All right, so super close. But they're, they're like two different people. I mean, this is like the, the Berlin Wall. I mean, I can't, I didn't uh, know yeah. how serious this was. This yeah, is, and there is a wall that has been built. Interestingly enough, wow, 30 feet, 30 feet high concrete barrier. When, when Americans see it, it shocks them because yeah. they do. It's bigger than the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So it's interesting. Holy cow. Anyway, so that's more than 15 seconds because you can't explain <laughs> that in 15 seconds. But that's just kind of a nutshell. Is Obama made some tracks as well. But there are a lot of forces behind the scenes that, that are ready to undermine certain efforts at peace and that's on both sides of the struggle yeah it seems like th there's some serious radicalism i mean all i hear i don't watch the news a lot specifically because it's mostly doom and gloom and i don't feel like you get a clear picture from either side when you watch the news i prefer to get information from people like you who actually have studied and aren't just a news station trying to sell you know sell the news but you know you often hear of hamas ro launching rockets and and i feel like you hear that a lot in the news so i'm going to derail our conversation a little bit i wanted to get back into you and, and what you've done with your career and, and teaching religion but but you know when you hear stuff on the news that hamas is launching rockets or is israel is is doing something how do you uh react to that and and is it pretty clear to you that it those are just the radical forces or is there some serious threat to all-out war in the region still? Well, Israel is a superpower. Okay. If you look at the power that the United States has militarily, Israel can't rive it. But given the region, there is a nobody militarily who could touch Israel. Wow. And so they are basically the only, the only nation in the Western world that actually has nuclear weapons active. Like wow. push a button. The United States would have to go through kind of a procedure to activate nuclear weapons. They could do it rather quickly, but mm -hmm. those they are alive and ready to shoot in in Israel. Got it. Uh, anyway, among the Palestinians, as a general of thumb, about ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of the opposition from Palestinians to the Israelis is peaceful resistance. Mm-hmm. And that could have anything to do, that could range from a march in the streets, that could go to graffiti on the so-called security barrier, which again, runs right, just Bethlehem, for example, is a Palestinian city. Okay. And so that's only five miles from Jerusalem. So in order to go from Bethlehem into Palestine, it's basically going into another nation. Wow. But you have to drive through Again, a 30-foot high concrete wall. And so when you get on the Bethlehem side, because Palestinians do not have free access. Uh, so they're, they're, the, for Muslim Palestinians, the holiest site would be Haram al-Sharif. Um, what Jews and conservative Christians refer to as the Temple Mount. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's where every Friday, a, an adherent Muslim within five miles of that site, the Holy Sanctuary, right would travel to pray but they cannot do that so i did a lot of research at, at bethlehem university with professors there and had a have a dear friend who was a professor at bethlehem university taught at the university lived near a, a town called ramallah that's where mm -hmm. she lives and that's about seven miles um and it would take her two and a half hours to get to bethlehem Wow. Because of the, the different checkpoints that you would have to, an American would never tolerate it. And so peaceful resistance can come at the different checkpoints. It can come at, with a march. There was peaceful resistance in, in Gaza a year ago and earlier where Palestinians just uh, marched to the barrier between Israel and 
the Gaza Strip and mm. and were attacked. Then you have other measures. Uh, oh, by the way, peaceful peaceful resistance can involve strikes. Mm. Taxes in Israel are incredibly high, and if you live in Jerusalem uh, or another city like Nazareth, your taxes are significantly higher, and so you just close the doors of your shop. Are they higher for Palestinians versus Israelis or uh-huh. or Jews? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so it's an it's an apartheid situation. If I were to just kind of lay it out in detail, you would say, "Man, that's South Africa." Yeah. So it's frequently South Africa. You know, when that was an apartheid. Uh, so it's frequently likened to South Africa, African American ghettoization. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has all. That's all about real estate. And where yeah. you can buy land, right? Yeah. So ghettoization of the inner city is is how you partition off people of color in the United States. You do it with real estate largely. Okay, you, you know, um, let me let me pause you there. I didn't understand that. <laughs> I, I laugh because I'm I'm from Utah and Idaho. I grew up knowing I l- had one African American or Black friend in Idaho growing up one more at our high school, our senior year. So I knew a total of two. So when you say racism, I'm just like, I, I've heard the word. I don't understand what it is. I never, ever experienced it, ever. You just another kid does, you know? I, I, we didn't care that he was black or African-American and, and I had no idea what racism was. So I had to prove for two years for my mission, experience extreme racism. Um, in Peru against whites and and blacks um, from the Peruvians. But then I go do summer sales and I sold alarm systems in Philadelphia, New Jersey, was in Baltimore and DC a little bit, and then Kansas City and where else was I? And then California. So what you're talking about was amazing when I saw that. Newark, New Jersey, I mean, the government builds ghettos for these people and it's 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 just crazy and they stay there they stay there for generations and it's pretty hard for them to get out i think a lot of them can get out but that's a whole nother topic but just uh, my perspective changed a ton when i spent five different summers in those ghettos and so what you're saying about palestine and, and israel it's much more real to me because I did experience it in Peru and, and the U.S. It was just very interesting to me, the living conditions, the segregation that still happens, whether it's by choice now or not. I mean, there's we can get off on a ton of different topics there, but very, very interesting to me how prevalent this still is. I feel like the U.S. from my travels is one of the most free countries in the world, but it's still definitely not 100% free or net not 100% perfect. Yeah, and so as real estate investors, if you can control how money is dispersed, mm-hmm. banking institutions, and you can determine who gets it and who doesn't, you can wreak all sorts of havoc, and you can also promote a lot of social equality. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, <clears throat> it, there's just a super interesting story about and complex history about how banking and land ownership was employed to separate whites and blacks. Sure. And I mean, so they didn't even try to hide it for, for 200 years, right? I mean, it wasn't even disguised. It was just straight right. up yeah. segregation. And, and I feel like now it's getting better. The, the investors I just got off a call with definitely care to treat people equally but i state i would say there's still a ton of it and it's disguised and i would say my generation doesn't even recognize it or know about it or really understand it and that's why yeah. it's, it's really fun to talk about because i we, we don't even know what's going on i mean we're just we listen to rap we are we watch your sports where 90 percent of the athletes are not white and we're fine with it we're totally cool with it but we don't understand really what's gone on and where these people are coming from yeah so anytime i access funds as I work with you and, and to invest, I, con- I do. I contemplate the people in the United States who do not have easy access. I mean, Sam, you and I, and my guess is most of your listeners can access money in the blink of an eye. We are not your typical Americans. We have access to a lot of resources. As you know, my daughter, what is she, 22? 
mm-hmm. maybe 23, she is building a, a home right now. Yeah. Right? So a 22-year-old being able to access six figures from financial sources, that, that is just unheard of. And so the freedoms that we enjoy, almost unconsciously, right? I, I try to stop and just consider that not everybody in the United States has access to those resources the way that I do and the way that you do. And, and we're just so casual about it. But I, like, I at least like to commemorate that minorities, including Jews, have been different ethnicities, have been hedged against financially for centuries. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you read Warren Buffett's book, his sister dated a Jew and she was basically almost disowned by Warren's family for dating a Jew. I mean, that's in Omaha, Nebraska. That's 50 years ago, but I had no idea what my, one of my greatest fears is, and you're, you know, you've got seven kids and you may be able to shed some light on this for me. I live in a great house in a great place with not a, not a lot of diversity though. And my number one fear is that my kids will be as oblivious to racism and, and uh, it's not a good place to teach them going to the news or going to politics because there's too much finger pointing, I feel. So one of my plans has been just to take them to the ghetto. I mean, I never, I met so many great people in these ghettos where I was selling alarm systems or pest control. And that was very eye opening. So one of my fears is that my kids are just going to grow up too too privileged and um, not really understand and just be oblivious to what's going on and, and how, like you said, how lucky they are to, to have the opportunities they have. Yeah. And studies have proven that the travel is, has an immeasurable, almost an immeasurable impact on somebody's appreciation for diversity. Yeah. And so that's why it's very important for me to take, all of my kids to the Middle East at least once because you see hotbeds of differences, whether you're in Egypt or Israel or Jordan. Those are pr- primarily the nations that I go to. And so, yeah, it's very, very enriching to get your kids off the, the Wasatch Front, which is pretty lily, lily white, right? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Meridian, Idaho, 33,000 residents, and we, we were either farmers or construction workers, and that was about it. So, yeah, I think that'll be one of the tactics I use to hopefully avoid the, the just, I guess, them being spoiled and oblivious to what the world's really like. Because going to Peru really opened my eyes, going to back east. And anyways, I, I, I'll, I'll uh, talk to you more about that. But I'd love to go to Jerusalem. I do have a question about your travels over there. How is it for Americans? Because when I was in Peru, there was times I couldn't go out of my apartment if they were on strike because they hated America. They hated George Bush. They didn't want free trade in, in Peru with, with America in 2006 or seven. I had to stay indoors for a week. Actually had to run from a, a group that kicked us off a bus and was throwing rocks at us because we were Americans. We had to run through a city and escape. So I've experienced racism and it's pretty crazy. And I've heard it's intense in the Middle East. Tell me how it is for, for Americans when you go back. Yeah, so what you can figure out in a big hurry is how privileged Americans are. That a passport from the United States of America is not gold, it's platinum, right? It wow. is the most privileged travel document on the planet. And so the relationship between Israel and the United States is incredibly strong. And so a, an American passport has, carries a lot of weight. And so as a general of thumb, when you're in Israel proper, you don't have to show a passport okay. at all, ever. One of the primary incomes of the modern state of Israel is tourism. And so we are completely welcome. And a lot of that is tourism from the United States. Okay. And so all the doors fly wide open. Then there are a lot of security measures that, so when an American uh, comes in and out of Israel, especially when they go out, there's, there's a lot of interrogation by Israeli security officials that can be kind of jarring. So I actually have to coach people how to leave Israel. Wow. All right. Anyway, the only time that I have received a great deal of opposition in my travels 
is when I was doing my research and it was obviously in the West Bank and Gaza. And these are areas that are heavily controlled by the Israeli Defense Forces. So the army basically governs the West Bank. Okay. okay. And so when you go from one section of the West Bank to another, some would suggest to you that the West Bank is entirely Palestinian, but that is not the case because Israel maintains, maintains governance over the roadways. So all Israel has to do to shut down the West Bank is close down the roads. Mm -hmm. And then you, can't, you don't have freedom of travel. So right. that's why my, my colleague at Bethlehem, it would take her two and a half, three hours, sometimes four hours to go seven miles mm -hmm. because the cab drivers would just have to get off the normal roads and go on like dirt roads over hills and stuff like that. Incredibly taxing, incredibly exhausting. I could just get on the road, ride in a taxi until I got to where the army with machine guns and everything stopped the taxi and told the taxi, you can go no further. I would then get out of the taxi, walk past the Israeli soldiers and just show them my passport. And I could pass through with ease, whereas my Palestinian friends and others that were in that taxi, because you, you get in what's called a shrewd, it's a public taxi. Mm -hmm. So it's like anchor. Yeah. Now are servicing that loan, you know, that don't know who you are, don't care. They just see a big uh, delta between what you owe and, and what they could sell it for if they kick you out. So, yeah, have a contingency plan, have some money set aside buy a property. You talked about stress testing. That's huge. I love that. You know, that's where multifamily is so much more risk adverse. You can buy properties that still cash flow if they're 10% vacant, 15% vacant, 20% vacant, or at least they still cover their own expenses. Right. I try doing that with a single family home. It's not yeah. possible or a duplex. That's not possible. You get one vacancy and you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, so, so tell me about this. I, I had a really good question from my business partner. He, he said, Sam, does your wife support you investing? And, and I think it sounds, I know your wife does, but tell me a little bit more about that dynamic. And yeah, I, don't, I think not only does she support you, but she sounds pretty excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And I think that it's relevant for almost everyone that is, is listening to this. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, first of all, my wife, Shonda, she, she is fully on board and she is actually helping in not only the development of growing our business, but also we manage some of our local properties. Mm -hmm. So she's also helping with that. So she's fully immersed in this and she doesn't have the background. She doesn't have the business background. She went to school to be a, to be a PTA. And she loved it. She loved working with kids. Mm -hmm. and But she's been a stay-at-home mom since we've had our kids 12 years ago. And, you know, she doesn't have that background. And I think a lot of people get really scared in investing because they're like, I don't have this background. I don't understand it. And yep. they're nervous to make that jump. So to have her just fully committed to growing this, you know, when I got that offer to sell, you know, she was on board because she saw the potential. You know, I laid it out for her. Mm -hmm. And she, I don't know, I'm trying to think how I want to word this. There's been a lot of stuff and projects that we've worked on in the past, like the fix and flips. Mm -hmm. And we didn't work very well together. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's more like the construction type of stuff. But yeah. I mean, sucks anyways. So. Yeah, and it was and it was a little um, weird to start off, and, and kind of like any type of partnership in a business, you know, you got to kind of find your place. And but we really have jived in this business together, and I get a lot of people that you know I have conversations with, and they're like, "Man, I wish my wife was on board," or I even so much as I wish my wife helped. And I got some, I got some people I know where their wives are like the opposite. Like they completely don't get it. And yep. it's almost like they're putting up roadblocks yep. and in it's hard, but you can still do it. You can still work around it, you know, and, and maybe it's just something where it just hasn't clicked in your partner's head as to what's happening mm -hmm. or they maybe, maybe they don't see what's happening 10 years from now by doing this. But that's, that's the goal. You know, this is, this is a slow game. 
yeah, you can make some money real quick, but if you want to scale it on a level that I want to scale it and I know that you want to scale it on, you know, this is, this is a, a game over years, decades, right? So maybe they just don't understand what that is, but I know my wife, she's definitely on board and we're both seeing the, the fruits of all of our hard work. That's awesome, man. That's, that's really good to hear. And, and I knew that was the answer. Otherwise I wouldn't have asked it because that was awkward. <laughs> that was a layup. <laughs> have you have you vent about your wife on the podcast? That would have been bad. But well, no, you didn't, Shonda, answer, you didn't answer how your wife is. She's is she awesome. Not? Yeah. No, I mean, she grew up with a lot of money. So okay. I didn't. And let's see, we were in college and I was selling door to door during the summer to put both of us through college. We got a small inheritance from her grandma and her parents naturally with coming from money, they said, Oh, you need to go buy a nice house with that money. And being independent and thinking for myself wasn't very popular with her family, but I, I went and bought that first flip and we moved into it and Lauren was all in and she was excited and we were, we made a ton of money. I mean, we made 70,000 on, on that first flip for us college students. That was huge. Her family definitely was not supportive, but (laughs) even, even after the 70,000 profit, well, they were all excited about that. They, it was pretty nasty. I mean, it was a good neighborhood. It was pretty dang nasty. You know, okay. dog pee house, cat pee house, gross. But once we got it fixed up, they said, oh, you need to stay here forever. And this is a great house. And then I moved, promptly moved us to a, a C location, maybe D, pretty bad area, into a duplex that we house hacked. And I remember them coming over for my birthday party. I invited everyone over. And it was just like horror. like them realizing where their daughter and and now granddaughter were living with me and and they were nice about it you know they weren't nasty they they just didn't think that's a spot where we should have been living and yeah. it wasn't great but guess what we made 45,000 in a year on on that flip and and we lived there for $300 a month because our renters paid our mortgage yeah so Lauren's been amazing it, it she's been stressed at times but she's always seen the vision and and, you know, I, I think you probably saw my photo on Facebook. I posted from that duplex, we moved into another flip and we house hacked that and then turned it into a rental. And, and we just cashed a check for a hundred grand. You know, we sold it a couple of years later for a hundred grand and yeah, I saw that, it, uh, you know, so it's been really fun, but <laughs> funny story. We moved in this last flip and well, I call it a flip. She didn't know it was a flip. So she said, you know what? I'm done moving. We, we don't, we're not moving for five or six years at least. And I just smiled and said, Oh, okay. You know, I'd figured why fight about it. I just said, okay. And then I think without telling her, I put money down on a new build about in February said, Hey, we're moving at the end of the year. And she just rolled her eyes. Okay, whatever. (laughs) But that's the worst I get from her. She just, you know, gets frustrated. But on the rental management side, you know, she's a mom with two kids and she's out showing our rentals and helping manage those. And, and it's awesome, you know, so yeah, we get stressed out. We move a lot and she hates having to make new friends all the time, but she really wants to have a fantastic life for the family. And, and she sees the vision. And I have friends, wives who they, they're pushing them to buy million dollar homes on a $150,000, $200,000 a year income. And and they have no investments, no savings, but that's what they want. They really, really yeah. want, you know, and we could have gone out and built a million dollar house and done that with our friends, but it's not what our goals are. So I'm very lucky to have a supportive wife and someone who is a partner and, and sees the vision just like Shonda and, and you guys are. So that's awesome to hear about you guys. What, what does she think about going big, big multifamily. I mean, is she comfortable with that as well? Because Lauren kind of, she it's kind of intimidating to her. Yeah. I, I mean, it is intimidating. I mean, you're talking about buying $20 million property. And yeah. while a lot of these are even labeled as non-recourse, there still is some recourse, you know, the bad boy clauses. If, yeah. if you aren't acting appropriately to what you should be doing, then, I mean, it can be recourse to the general partnership. So, I I mean, it is scary, but I mean, what investment isn't scary? Right. I mean, would you put, let's say you had a million dollars. Would you go put that in the stock market? That's way scary. Yeah. I I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's an investment. It's, it's, it does come with 
some risk. You know, right. there's, there's no investment out there without risk. So it, it is scary, yeah. but I think that, you know, I don't want to put words in Shauna's mouth, but I mean, there's really been no hesitation. I mean, she's, she was there with me through the whole process. You know, she's been, she's been seeing the process. She's been seeing the, the fruits of what we've been investing in. And she's also been there dur- during the growth and learning phases as well. You know, we've both been to uh, multiple boot camps w- of Rod Cleefs, and we actually used our very first one in Chicago as our springboard to determine whether we wanted to go full multifamily. We wanted to make sure, hey, let's find out from some other people, make sure we didn't miss out um, on some kind of secret sauce on how to make this work or... right. But I mean, she was there, we were there making the decision together, learning together and um, networking together. So yeah, no, she is, she's on board. And I think the biggest challenge is, you know, I said, you know, she doesn't come from a um, business background. So as you, the bigger you get, the more business like it is, Yeah. the more institutionalized it is. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is just having more confidence in the business side of it as, as it gets bigger and bigger. And I think that's with everyone, even myself, you know, you see those bigger numbers that, you know, you realize you got to take it a little more seriously. Right. Absolutely. No, that's, and I've seen her at the events, you know, and, and that's the thing I, I would say is Rod Cleef is great. I mean, amazing training, amazing group of people like you and, and it's been fun to hang out with people and learn but when you jump into things, you educate yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't educate yourself indefinitely, with which a lot of people do. They don't take action because they just want to get educated. But you take action and educate yourself. And, and I, I know that's what is one of the recipes that has helped me be successful is I'll jump into something, but it's very precise what I'm doing. I'm jumping in because I know it's going to be hard. It's risky but I also have done the research, ed- educated myself and hung around the people that can help me make the right decisions. And, you know, our mastermind is a great example of that. There's people maybe doing it the wrong way in the mastermind, a lot of people doing it the right way, and a lot of people willing to share what it takes and different things they've learned. And, and that's one thing that I love about the mastermind that you and I are in is there's a lot of great people willing to share what not to do and, and what to do. So what do you think the next step is for, for you and Shonda and, and your business? Are you guys taking down a property on your own? Where are you looking or, or what is your business plan? I really like um, partnering and it just makes sense because none of us can be good at everything. I, right. I've yet to meet one person that's good at everything. Yep. So you have they to say re- they are be, be careful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But you really have to realize what your weaknesses are and figure out how to fill those. Whether that's, uh, if you don't want to partner, you have to figure out how to hire that done and, and really, you know, use that to the, to the maximum. But I find that I'm trying to think what the saying is. If, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. That, right. And, and that's really the, the motto in my head when it comes to moving forward. And that's partnering with people that, not only have maybe more experience than me, but fill in my weaknesses. And so far it's worked out really well for me. And that's where, that's where we're moving forward is as far as partnering, I'm putting to um, putting together a lot of informative stuff for, for my investors as well. Kind of what you're doing with this podcast And what I want to help them with is that even if they don't invest with me, be cautious, you know, realize how to analyze deals or maybe it's even just realize what other options you have out there. Because I I mean, I know people that are really into stocks and Mm -hmm. some people are good at it. (laughs) I've not had a legit conversation with someone that has been good at it for a long time. You know, I've, sure. I've known people that have really had good runs. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I know that when I was in stocks, I would have a good run for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And within about four to six months, that run would be completely wiped away. And I'd be oh. starting back, you know, from what, 
I put into it. And I think that's the majority of what people encounter with that. So I'm kind of getting off topic here, but yeah, I, I mean, similar to what you're doing with this podcast recession proof is that, you know, we're at this point, this, this tipping point. And what I feel is that I want people to be prepared Mm -hmm. because I know when people are prepared, they can make better decisions, not only now, but when something bad happens. Yeah, no, that's huge. So strategic partnerships are really what you're working on now. It sounds like, yeah. And we're doing the same thing. So when I started this business, you know, actually when I got out of building fourplexes last year and, and I just said, Hey, what's the best thing for my clients? You know, what's the best thing for my investors? If a recession comes, I don't want them to be buying single family duplexes, fourplexes as much as I'd rather them buy multifamily if they can. Now I, I, I buy townhomes. I'm buying two more townhomes right now with a partner, but we're very, very conservative in our purchases. So I said, Hey, let me put together a team, you know? So I invited my friend Lyndon to, to be on this team and he doesn't have a massive background in real estate. He's a business owner, kind of like you, very successful, very smart. He's a CPA as well. And I said, I want someone that is a little bit more nerdy than I'm pretty nerdy. I, I like looking at spreadsheets, <laughs> but he's really good at looking at spreadsheets and underwriting, running the numbers on deals. And so that was a strength that he really brought to our partnership that was way better. He's way better at me at, at spreadsheets. And, and when you're evaluating a 60 door facility, you've got to be able to run the numbers and make sure you don't miss something because at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers and, and mm-hmm. what you can do with those numbers. You know, if you put $5,000 a door per door into the complex, what does that equal in a rent bump? And what does that equal for your investors? You know, the other strategic partner we've made is, is the money guy, the guy that has 30 years investing experience. He brings a balance sheet to the table. You met him at the mastermind group. He's a fantastic individual. And, and by the way, work with people that you like and that are fun to be around because yes, I'm done with people that, that aren't team players. He's a team player. He, he has a lot of money to spend on real estate, which is great, but he's ultra conservative. So he's seen three or four crashes in the market. He's twice my age. I hope he doesn't hear this and hear me say that. <laughs> but, but a really great guy. He, he's conservative because he's seen the ups and downs in the market. So we have, we have this powerhouse team, I feel, of underwriting, investor relations, which is me, scouting the deals, which is me, and then a very experienced conservative money guy. And, and now we've found in a, a property manager with 5,600 doors under management who's extremely conservative as well and aggressive with his property management, who holds his, his regionals and his property managers to a very high level of professionalism. And, and I, I think that's really important. And I love sharing information with you and with the other people in our mastermind. So you don't have to be on a team with people, but just sitting in the same room four times a year, talking on a podcast with you, I, I see huge value there. And I'm kind of curious, do you have any mistakes you'd like to share with our investors that maybe if you had the right partnership or right experience, you maybe wouldn't have made that mistake? Yeah. So you don't have to. I mean, it could be someone else. You can make it up about your friend George or something. No, I won't even make this up. You know, I'm, I'm going to be real with you. I think, I think we all make mistakes and people that are, that are new to investing in real estate may make the same mistake and it falls right in line with partnership. But I actually went into a partnership and trusted somebody very early when I, when I started, mm-hmm. you know, started to do buy and hold investing and I didn't do proper due diligence on this partner and it ended up really burning me on some projects. I know one of them that I lost 90 grand on, oh. I mean, you don't want to lose $90,000, but you know what? I, I just realized where I was and I know that I can make it in a different project and I don't have to make it in that same project. So it's really, even though you may find the person that fills your gap, like you said, it needs to be somebody that you jive with. Yeah. Somebody that you enjoy working with because I mean, we only get so many days on earth. Yeah. So, you know, really feeling that you can trust that person and grow with them and, that they have your back just as much as you have their back. 
I, I think that that's very important. So many people starting out will trust people, but not verify it. Yep. And that's one of the biggest things that I can say, especially when you're trying to scale and partner and grow bigger. And this may not even be something that you're partnering with. Some people will spend less time really researching a potential partner than they would an employee. They'd spend way more time with an employee, but <laughs> yeah. going to a partnership and just be like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think they're good. Yeah. So even though I was very cautious with this partner, it still was to the point where I should have researched more, not only in um, done my own research instead of trusting his, but I should have researched him as well. So I think that that, that could be a big key for some people, um, whether you're active or passive, you know, really research who you're doing business with because um, that is important. No, that's huge. And the saying for businesses is be slow to hire and fast to fire. Mm-hmm. Same thing goes with partners. And, you know, I was approached by a, a number of groups to, to help them raise money and work partner on their deals. And a couple of groups didn't ask me about my background. They didn't ask me what I was doing for money. They didn't ask me for re- references, referral, I mean, anything. And then I asked them and, and they kind of just didn't get why. And, and I said, you know, if, if you don't care who you jump in the business with, that's a huge red flag for me. Yeah. And um, I've got a group, they keep hitting me up to, to partner on deals. And I said, hey, I'm still waiting for those references. You know, I think you're good guys, but send me a list of your investors that have worked with you and send me a list of your partners that you've worked with. And um, am I going to Google your name and find someone you worked with that says you're a crook? You know, I, I hope not, but it's huge. And, and the other thing I realized really quickly with the last group I was with is if it's all about the money, it's going to get old fast. And that's a bad partnership. And it be, and with those guys, it was all about the money, how much I was making, even though they were making so much more than me, I was adding a ton of value, I thought, and I didn't think the money should come up. Yet they always wanted to know how much I was making and see if they could pay me less. And even though they were making killing. And so if you have partners that are so worried about how much they're making versus how much you're making, it needs to be fair. You know, there needs to be something in writing, but you know, my, my business partner, Lyndon and I, and, and then Michael, we haven't even discussed what, what we're all making. We've discussed how do we do a deal and, and make a ton of money and help each other become successful and, and financially free. That's the main topic. And that's how it is with my investors, my clients, is that I'm not really worried about the fees I'm making. The money will take care of itself. But how can we add value to each other and just have a really good relationship that's mutually mutually beneficial? Yeah. Yeah. If we're going far together, that stuff doesn't matter right now. Yep. And, and I've been having quite a few conversations lately about scarcity and abundance mindset. And I think that falls right in line with it. I think the people that are worried about all those small details and how much you're making, how much they're making, I, I think that's the scarcity mindset. Yep. So having that abundance mindset, it's like, hey, you know, I think you're doing a great job. I feel like I'm doing a good job. It seems like you think I'm doing a good job. Let's go far together. And how do we go far together? And it's yeah. not about, you know, oh, wait, you got $10 and I only got five. It, it, I mean, that's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, money is important, you know, making sure that everything is fair, but in reality, it's everything else that comes along with it. Yeah. That's huge. That's absolutely important. Well, it sounds like that was a, a an expensive lesson for you. 90 grand hurts. <laughs> well, I will say, I wanted to ask you though, can Shonda laugh about it? Did she say, I told you so? And that was, it was a very contentious purchase. Even from the beginning, I, it was going to be one of those D-class properties to to bring around that, like kind of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I think now we can laugh about it. It was a very rough time. That was a long journey we went on. I kept every decision I made. I felt like I was making the right decision, uh-huh. but it, it just kept going and, and, you know, problem after problem after problem, even after, even though I was making the right decision you know, financially and investment wise, it just, it just could never, you know, it's kind of like you see those funny videos where someone, the top of their body's going faster than their feet and they, their feet can't catch up with their body. I mean, that's kind of what's, you know, my feet could not catch up with, with this property. So 
I will say the advantages to real estate, I was able to take so much of that losses against my other income. Uh-huh. And I actually calculated out, I only lost about 20 grand when it comes all right. to all the benefits of, you know, depreciation and the expense, the taxes that I wouldn't pay on my other profit. So, I mean, 20 grand isn't all that bad. It's better than 90. It's a lot better than 90. <laughs> well, that's the way I'd swing it to your wife, you know, next, next time she brings it up. Yeah. And, th- and that was our decision. I mean, that's what it came down to is like, you know, when we realized, hey, we just can't catch up to this and we couldn't find the right people to help us catch up to that. It was just, it was just kind of a realization of, okay, this is in reality, this is really what we would lose. Mm-hmm. It's not that much. Let's make up that $20,000 in the next deal. And, you know, I, I look yeah. at, I spent time on another deal where I made almost 300 grand in a year. Nice. And I mean, on a 10 plex. So, I mean, you, you just look at that. I mean, 20 grand was nothing compared to what I've made on the other properties. So, well, and, and the money you'll make by partnering with the right people and the lessons you've learned. So I absolutely never want to lose money, but sometimes that's the education you pay for. Yeah. Well, Adam, we're about out of time and, and I've got to run to my next appointment. I'm sure you've got to get okay. back to working with investors and laying your patio. Yeah. Right. How can our listeners reach out to you? What do you have going on that they can click on, go to email you? What's the best way to reach, reach you and find out what you're doing? Yeah. So my company is Welkin Equity. That's W-E-L-K-I-N. So WelkinEquity.com. You can hit me up there or I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, I try to spend a good amount of time on all those. I don't I don't spend too much time on Instagram, but you know, reach out to me. Maybe you want to get on my email list. I send out emails about, you know, what I'm up to and uh, yeah, I have a couple deals possibly in the work, which is great, so I'm really looking forward to those, but you know how the hot market goes, so we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> and and tell everyone where you're from and and where you're looking to do business as far as multifamily goes. Absolutely. So I am in Northeast Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You probably don't have many Fort Wayne, Indiana investors or investors on your podcast. Nope. I will invest in pretty much the Midwest or some very hot markets that are have been proven to be recession proof or recession resistant. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of staying away from the East and the West Coast unless it's a really slamming deal. Good choice. But uh, pretty much the pretty much the U.S basically you just follow jobs like I do, right? If there's job growth, yeah, absolutely. Economy, that's what you so, follow. Just, just looking at the market data and see if it, seeing if it makes sense and if it can follow along with your podcast and be recession proof. <laughs> <laughs>